Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Woman, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking with Ingrid Rojas Contreras, the author of The Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Hi, Kendra. I'm so excited to talk about this book. Yes. Well, you have been talking about it for a few months now, I think. I have been, you know, and the thing is, is throughout the year, we often say that a book is our favorite, but now that it's the end of the year, I can honestly say this is like in my top three books I read this year. Yeah, it really is amazing. And unlike most of these stories for our interviews, it started out with one of us reading a book and shoving it into the other one's hands. And this time you found it and we're like, Kendra, have you read this book yet? Why haven't you read this book yet? Read it now. Like, now, now. Yes. So um, my audiobook hold has it come in autumn? <laughs> everyone should have a friend who shoves books into their hands, but we digress. That's uh, true. It's a true statement. <laughs> so Fruit of the Dragon Tree is about a family living in Colombia in the 90s during when there's a lot of civil unrest there. And so it has a multi-perspective book between Chula, the protagonist who's living with her family, and then also Patrona, who goes into the family as a maid slash housekeeper, and the perspective of the political turmoil from both of those women's, well, young young women's perspectives. So, I really loved the story just because I have not read many books set in South America, and the setting was beautiful and it was very eye-opening as well and the writing oh so good and so this is Ingrid's debut novel and she actually grew up in Bogota, Bogota, Colombia and she's written quite a few essays that have appeared in like Electric Lit and Huffington Post but this is her first novel which is amazing. You know there have been some stellar debut authors this year just so many. There really have been and and Ingrid mentioned in this interview that she was in the same writer's residency with Crystal Hanekim, who wrote If You Leave Me, who was on the podcast with us earlier this year. So these are kind of book sisters in a way. They are, which is really cool. I, I love hearing stories like that, like The Immortalists with Coley Benjamin and Lucy Tan and the What We Are Promised and how they're friends and their books are friends. And it's just cool. <laughs> but enough about that. Here is our conversation with Ingrid about her novel, The Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Well, we're here today with Ingrid. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're so grateful that you're willing to come on and chat with us today. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to chat with you today. We both really loved your book. I actually read it first, and then I immediately told Kendra, I was like, okay, you need to like put down whatever you're reading and read this one next. So we really enjoyed it. Oh my gosh, thank you. So for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read your book yet, uh, could you tell them a little bit about what Fruit of the Drunken Tree is about? Yeah. Uh, so Fruit of the Drunken Tree is tells a story that happens in the 90s. And the background of the novel, there's car bombs and there's assassinations and there's kidnappings. And it's the time, it's the heyday of Pablo Escobar when he's in prison and then he's on the run. And living through these times are two young girls. One of them, Chula, is seven years old at uh, the beginning of the book. And the other one, Petrona, 
is 13 years old and Petrona comes to work as a maid in Chula's house. The two of them develop this friendship and they, they come from such different worlds. Petrona lives in guerrilla occupied territory in, in Colombia, in Bogota. And Chula is a middle class girl. Um, so the, the friendship that they have is kind of undercut by the by the differences of the kinds of lives that they lead. And they share, uh, they start to share secrets and the secrets will end up unspooling both their lives. I really enjoyed the setting of your book. And I was actually kind of surprised once I realized the time period it was written in, because I don't remember anything about that time period or Escobar or anything like that being in the news or in my history books or in any context at all. So it was really interesting for me to, and eye-opening for me to like read about all of that and um, what was going on in Colombia at the time. You know, I think uh, the, the civil conflict for us had been going on for so long since then, since then mm-hmm. that maybe it was considered just the normal the day-to-day normal life of living in Colombia back then. Mm -hmm. I wonder if maybe that was why it wasn't reported, just because things like that had been going on for a long time. Your book, the title of your book is really interesting, and the title was one of the first things that really drew me in. And so could you talk to us a little bit about where the title came from and kind of the role it plays in the narrative? Yeah, so the, uh, The Drunken Tree is a transliteration of what we call um, the uh, borrachero tree. And it's this, the, if you see the cover, it's that flower that's on the cover. That's the flower of a borrachero tree. In, in Colombia, it's used like you can grind the seeds and into this powder. And the powder is known as burundanga. And when you're exposed to this powder, it, it affects you. It, it, it almost takes your free will away, and it's kind of like a zombie drug. If I expose you to this powder, and I, if I were to tell you, go to the ATM and withdraw all your money, you would immediately do this. And the thing is that it doesn't affect your motor skills in any way. And to anybody else who doesn't know that you've been, you're under the influence of this drug, it, you, they wouldn't guess that you that there is anything wrong in the situation. And the day after you're exposed to it, you have memory loss. So you don't know who gave it to you exactly. And you have a very hard time uh, recollecting what happened. So uh, Chula, her house has a borrachero tree in the, in the front garden. And... I think for me, this is such a beautiful tree. The The flowers are so completely striking. Like sometimes they're orange with a, tinged with a little bit of ruby red. Sometimes they're white. And the smell is so intoxicating. It's this, it, it smells like this expensive perfume, but almost like if somebody sprayed too much of this perfume in an elevator, that's how intoxicating it is. And yet it has this danger running through it. So I think for me, the, the symbol of, of the tree, I think, uh, as I was writing the book, came to mean Colombia. Just this very beautiful 
absolutely gorgeous place, but with a lot of danger running underneath. And the, and the flower and the powder in the novel have a central role in how everything comes apart. So it, to me, it, it, it wasn't, I didn't come up with it right away, but once I came up with it as, as the title, uh, I couldn't go back. It just, it seems like the perfect, the perfect title in the, for the book. Later in the book, I feel like the theme of the tree comes through a bit more. And I won't give any spoiler explaining why. But of course, when I read about this tree that I had never really heard of, I you know Googled it. And it is really a, just a beautiful tree. And I love what you said about it being such a beautiful plant, but also being so deadly and can be so harmful at the same time and how that represents the story throughout the novel. So it just... I love it when two themes, like the story and the theme, come together so well with such a, a visible symbol that's recurring throughout the book. So that was really just a delight to read as well. Thank you. And you know what? The, so I grew up with, with this tree in the front yard of my house. And in my apartment building in San Francisco, we had that tree as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. I was thinking about, you know, the whole time that I was writing this book, I actually had to pass by this, this tree a lot when I was going in and out of my house. So maybe that was another way in which it just <laughs> started to come out in the novel more and more just because I was living with it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think was so cool to learn was that where there was a variety in America as well. Yeah. And here it's called, it's either known as devil's trumpet because the flower is shaped like a trumpet that's um, kind of dangling down mm-hmm. or it's known as angel's trumpet devil's trumpet or angel's trumpet wow. that's quite the spectrum of names <laughs> going from angel to devil to ambivalence <laughs> toward the tree this not knowing if it's if it's a positive thing or if it's a negative thing so that's even present in how it's known in the u.s well, it's really fascinating. You know, so you mentioned that you had one of these trees in your front yard, and I'd read in some other vid- interviews about how your book was inspired by events that happened in your life. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about, like, when you knew you needed to write the story and kind of, like, what your pro- your writing process was like and how you wove together these true events with the fictional events? Yeah, I think I started, the fir- the very first thing that I wrote was nonfiction, and I just wrote the nonfiction story. So the story that it's, that it's based on is that there, w- there was a girl like Petrona who my family took in, and she had been displaced by the civil conflict, and she had the, one of the armed groups had burnt her family's farmland down. And so they were displaced from where they lived and they came to Bogota. And we have so many displaced people in Colombia. So it, it's not an uncommon story, sadly. And so we, we took her in and she lived with us and she worked as our nanny and she did maid's work in our house. And she was threatened into acting against uh, my family. And she was very young when it happened. And I think uh, when I started to write, this story just haunted me. Just the the idea that she could be, you know, 15 years old and have this kind of weight 
put on put upon her to either uh, harm the family that is trying to help you or to suffer yourself the consequences or to you know put endanger your own family so that was very haunting and, and the very first thing that I wrote uh, was was nonfiction but I found very quickly that I just couldn't quite write it I couldn't quite go there emotionally just because the way that it that our lives came together was so was so lovely, but then the way, the way that our lives were ripped apart was so dreadful. I just couldn't make myself to go there emotionally. And yet I tried not to write this book for many years and it just kept uh, haunting me. It just kept emerging out of everything that I, that I tried to write. It would just become this story again. It was just all, everything I wrote just led me back to the material. At some point, I just decided to just fictionalize it. If I couldn't tell the real story, then maybe if I, if I changed the characters, if the situation changed slightly, if these were different people living through that situation, maybe I would be able to, to be more free. And I was. Um, and so <laughs> that's the kind of process. I had to trick myself into doing it, I guess. I think that's a beautiful thing about fiction is that it can free up writers in a way that nonfiction can't necessarily because you have the freedom to change what you need to and, and work with that narrative and give yourself some distance. Yeah, I think sometimes you do need that kind of in order to understand any kind of situation fairly, especially when you're when you're writing a book uh, and you're writing a story that's not just your own. There's other people involved and there's other experiences involved. It's so important to get that distance in order to be fair to what other people's other situations are. So for me, it was it was very freeing to to divorce myself and to distance myself from the story. And then to just, as a writer, look at the situation and look at my characters and be able to see through them in a very naked way, trying to see each time that I wrote a scene, just trying to get to the bottom of, of the feeling or um, Chula's privilege or of kind of Petrona's situation where she didn't have a choice. In, you mentioned Chula and Petrona and how you have those two primary, you have those two perspectives. Uh, and I really loved in the audiobook how they each had their own narrator. And so it was a great way to hear each of the characters' voices. Uh, and so since Petrona is living with Chula's family, you know, as a like maid housekeeper, uh, we get the two different perspectives of the historical context of what was going on at the time. Did you find it difficult to balance these two perspectives when you were writing the novel? I think in the beginning, it was it was hard for me to to find the the breath the breath of the language to be able to go from one story to the other, and for me to imagine how this how the story could bounce back and forth and be told through these different points of view. I think that took me a while to figure out how that could work, but in the end, it, I think I it was so important to me because. I, you know, it's, it's just, it's a thing with Colombia where sometimes I would, I would talk to people who lived in Bogota and they're maybe like middle class or like higher class people, and they wouldn't have any experience of the civil conflict at all. 
they would probably describe Bogota as being a very peaceful city where nothing happens and you're safe all the time. And it just, it struck me because if you, if you talk to someone who is from the lower classes living in Bogota, you are definitely in the middle of violence. You definitely see some things and uh, you experience things. Things happen not just to you, but to people in your surroundings and you're that much closer to the violence. So I, I think I I struck to the to the two points of view and it, and it was important for me to be able to portray them because there's almost two experiences of, of Colombia and it depends on whether you are sheltered by your class or not. So you're either, you either think it's very safe or you either think that it's a very violent country. And as someone who, I have family who are, um, who live in very poor areas of the country and they definitely experience more violence. Um, and as someone who was able to travel back and forth between those two worlds and kind of see the differences and see just how different the quality of life could be, I, I thought that was a very unique um, point of view. And I just wanted to to offer that when I in in the writing of my first book. That difference between the point of view was one of the things that really, I think, made this book extra special for me because you don't get to, as you mentioned, like you don't get to see these two different perspectives in close proximity before. And one of the things, you know, about the book is what you're saying about the violence and how, because of their social status and their wealth, the Santiago family is sheltered from a lot of the violence and, you know, Patrona, she can't help but like be in the middle, like she's surrounded by the violence and it's just such a stark contrast, you know, in your writing. And I, it made me wonder like I, why it is that like class is often less left out of discussions of violence. And like, I don't think that's something that I've seen a lot in literature. I've read books about class, but not, the violence part of it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like why, like maybe why that is, or um, talk a little bit more about why you want to include that in your story? I think it's just one of the first things that I understood as a girl. And it was, it was one of the first things that I was curious about. And it was something that I just couldn't understand as hard as I could. I couldn't understand why, you know, both my parents came from very impoverished backgrounds. So whenever, you know, in Bogota, whenever we would go to, to, it was the holiday season and we would, all my friends would go to this Melgar, which is uh, a place where you go to pools and you're just lounging there all the time and you're riding horses, that kind of vacation. And us, we would we would travel to the northeastern part of the country, and we would go see my grandmother, and she was she was living on stolen land, so it, it wasn't it was land that the family had settled on, and she the the house that she built the house she built it with her own hands, so whenever there was money, she would put up another room or she would put down, she would put the floor finally. And I, I just couldn't understand why I had access to education and why some of my cousins did not have access to education. Um, 
And then it was just the, it was just such a different experience because we, when we went to see my grandmother, there would be, sometimes there would be like paramilitary and guerrilla skirmishes. There would be like shootouts. Sometimes there would be just a lot of violence surrounding the community. And it was that much more immediate. So I think it was just one of the one of the first things that I that I noticed when I was a girl. And it was just that kind of burning question, like why why how come like we don't have this experience and how come my grandmother does? And I don't know, you know, maybe you have to have that kind of burning question as you're developing as an artist for that to show up in your work. Um, I wonder if if that's, you know, one of the reasons. But it, it was, yeah, it was just, it marked me. It was just something that I couldn't stop thinking about um, as a person. Mm-hmm. And there were some some girls who would who would also be your nanny not not the girl that uh Petrona is based on but a different girl uh she was also very young she was she was 16 and there was one time where she came home to us and she was just in tears so we brought her to the kitchen and we asked her what is wrong are you okay uh can we call someone and she told us that her her father had been found dead his body had been cut by a machete. Oh my goodness. And so she had, she was the one that had to put the body parts and collect them into a trash bag. So that kind of, you know, I wouldn't have that experience ever. So it was, it was both heartbreaking to me and it, it was just a burning question that I had and I still have all my life is why, you know, what are, what are the choices or what are the systems that are in place that allow for that, for those kinds of experiences that are so wide apart and yet you're in the same city and you're, you know, living together. You know, I was always really enthralled with the, the girls who worked, who we took in and who worked in our, in our home. And I would, I have many memories of, of sitting in the kitchen and listening to them tell stories. Our family, we really became part of their lives. I don't know if that's uncommon. <laughs> Sometimes I think it might be a little uncommon, but, I, but I'm not sure. Yeah, so maybe the listening, you know, the interaction with someone who is, who is living in, this, in the same city as you are, and yet they're different, and yet they're leading such different lives. Maybe that interaction doesn't come to be a lot and maybe that's why we don't see it in in fiction as much I yeah I think that's probably really true and I think that I'm glad you brought up the grandmother too because she was a really interesting character and almost brought I felt like a third perspective to the story as I was reading it yeah I really loved the the grandmother character um, I was trying, I, you know, I felt so sheltered and so taken care of by the women in my family. And I wanted to give space to that in the novel, to have this world of women who are living in this world that's maybe not made for them. I really wanted that. I wanted a grandmother who who showed courage in a, in a time of in like a shootout and I wanted a mother who was opinionated and 
uh, strong and willful. And I wanted to have young characters who are trying or who are learning how to be women um, in that, you know, coming from that background of, you know, violence, but also of machismo. And this is a story really that focuses on the the women and how the violence of of the time period and, and the turmoil of the time really affect women in, in various ways and how they rise up and combat that and are, and are strong for each other and to take care of their families. Uh, this book is so many strong women in this book. And Chula at one point calls their home a kingdom of women. Uh, so for you, why was it so important for you to tell this story from a perspective of so many strong women characters? I, I think it's uh, when I when I was growing up in Colombia, I I remember just so many comments that were meant to put me in my place. You know, things like, you know, girls don't, you, sh- you should always wear a dress. Or I remember being in class and saying something like, I want to be a scientist when I grow up. And my science teacher being like, oh, that's not really like a, a girl profession. Like you should think of something else. So it's that paired with, how strong women tend to be in the in the culture was something that is has always been really interesting to me and really inspiring to me. There's probably my my favorite story of my mom is when she so she was when she was young, she has a lot of brothers, older brothers. And when she was young, my grandmother would be telling her that she needed to to wash her brother's clothes and that she needed to wash her dishes and that if they came home, she needed to bring them the food, like serve them. And, you know, uh, my, nobody taught my mother to rebel against that. Nobody said like, you know, you never take that, you know, <laughs> nobody told her to rebel, but she, she just decided that she, there was no reason for that. And so she she told her mother that she wasn't going to do it. My grandmother beat her for it. And she she was still uh, insistent that she would not uh, serve her brothers and she would not wash their clothes. Um, and my grandmother beat her again. So she decided she went to the kitchen and she got uh, scissors and she cut her own hair really short. And so then she walked up to my grandmother and she told her, I'm a boy now. I don't have to do any of the. (laughs) (laughs) That's an amazing story. Uh, She told me that when I was when I was little. And I just remember really understanding that all the rules that are that are in place, you don't have to follow. I just remember this incredible feeling of of, oh, like it's all systems and somebody decided on the systems and we can change the systems. Mm. And so that it's, it's, it's one story that I think has maybe inspired, uh, has inspired me for the rest of my life. (laughs) will continue to inspire me. So I really wanted to, to have a, a group of women who are, and to see how they are, how they're limited by their situation, 
how they're affected by the violence specifically and how they're trying to make it out together. Yeah, and I think that the women in the story, like you don't read many books for most of the point of view. I think actually all of the point of view characters are women. And I was just amazed too by, as you mentioned, like the wide variety of women. And like, I feel like I read a lot of books about women and they try to like put, like have like one type of woman, but the strength that the women that you wrote in your book come in all different kinds of categories and it manifests itself. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's like manifests itself in different ways depending on their situations, which I also found really striking as well, um, just to see the different how they use their strength in their different situations. Yeah, I really wanted to imagine all the women fully, and I wanted to just really follow through with, you know, from the from the place where they came from and the situation that they're in. I tried really hard to imagine what are the parts that are rooting them in place. What are the what are the parts that are pushing against them? Uh, what are the parts that are limiting them? What are they trying to break free from? And what are things that they ultimately cannot break free from? So I really tried to imagine that for all of them. Just like Autumn said, there are so many multifaceted women of all different shapes and sizes and perspectives in, in this book. And I feel like that's just something that we definitely need. And I loved how you put all of these characters together and really the women carry the story, but not in a stereotypical, you know, only strong woman kind of way, but there are women with all different viewpoints and they're not always strong. They're, they're real, it's like the real people. And that's just a beautiful thing that you did. And we really loved reading all of the different characters and viewpoints. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. Thank you. We could talk about, probably women and different things for a very long time. But I want to make sure I ask you about the joy of language before we go. So like the characters in your book, you've mentioned that you were born in Colombia and you immigrated to the United States. So Spanish is your first language, but you also speak English fluently. And now you've written your book in English, but then it's translated now into Spanish. So I wanted to ask you about your relationship to these two languages and how that worked in the context and writing Fruit of the Drunken Tree and that being a book set in Colombia? That's a great question. You know, as a girl, I went to bilingual school. So I started to learn English maybe when I was nine or so. Um, and I was so in love with English that I would take the dictionaries home with me and I would read them. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I just loved the the sound, the Germanic kind of sound. I loved the way that it worked. And in, for example, in Spanish, we, we there's many places in a sentence where you can put the adjective. And in English, uh, there tends to be only one place where you can place it. And I, I was very attracted by those kinds of rules. And I was also very attracted by the idioms. There was this one section in the dictionary in the middle that was just all the idioms. And this is the part that that I would like read like I was reading like a thriller or something. <laughs> and it, it was just so interesting to see 
how a culture can be embedded into the sayings that that culture has. So one of the ones that really struck me was on the other hand, you know, what I, what I thought was like, oh, so Americans are walking around with arguments in their hand. Suddenly, <laughs> on the other hand. <laughs> and, you know, it's the kind of thing that really, it really illuminates how your own language as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why, why I loved learning English was that it taught me so much about my own language and things that I would take for granted. But when once I started to get into the idioms, it just made me realize how how strange and visceral some of the sayings that we have in in Spanish in Colombia. So one of one of them, which is actually in the in the in the book, is if somebody gets pregnant, what we say is that her belly was filled with bones. Hmm. And so it's it's a very visceral, raw, almost like violent way of saying that somebody is pregnant. And it feels very Colombian to me, that kind of point of view, the fact that not that a baby is growing inside of you, but that your your stomach is filled with bones. And so I, I started to see these places in, in languages where where the culture and the ethos of the culture lives in the language. And when I was writing, it's it's a gift to know two languages and it's a gift to to have that kind of knowledge and to be able to write from these, to draw from these very two kind of like poetic idioms and poetic understandings of life. What I would do when I would write is that I would try to write in both languages. And how I would do it is that I would imagine the story in Spanish and I would hear the story in Spanish and by the time that it the it reached my fingers I would type it in English so I was doing kind of like my own translation as I was writing when the Spanish translation came out it it was almost like I had translated the book once myself in writing it in English originally and so then to read the Spanish translation just messed with my brain it was just oh, hard wow. to, it was just hard to read because I felt like I had already gone through that and I didn't I didn't do the translation the translation uh, was done by Guillermo Arreola who he's wonderful and uh, at times it felt like I was listening to my original thoughts I guess so it was a very trippy experience to yeah <laughs> That's really cool, though. I mean, what an amazing experience. Yeah. It sort of sounds like a literary game of telephone. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. and, I, and I really loved, you know, like Fruit of the Drunken Tree is a transliteration. Because we don't, you know, the tree is known as Borrachero, but we, instead of, you know, trying to find maybe the what is the name of the tree in English and using that, I just transliterated the words in Spanish. And I did things like that throughout the novel because I wanted I wanted the writing to feel a little bit like Spanish without you knowing that that's what was going on. It definitely has a fluid, melodic, rhythmic writing to it, for sure. And that was one of the 
best parts about reading it is just getting immersed in the language. So it's very, very beautifully done. We both really enjoyed that part of it. So I'm sure we could have a lot more questions and talk to you a lot more about your book. But one of the questions we love to ask the people we have on the podcast is who some of their favorite women writers are. So who are some of the like your favorite like women writers who you've read recently or that you think maybe Colombian writers that you think that people should read or any authors like that? So one of my favorite writers is um, Patricia Engel. And oh, wrote, yes. Yeah. Uh, she wrote Vita, which is a, it's a wonderful collection. And the, the Veins of the Ocean, which is a beautiful, absolutely gorgeous novel about Colombian-born but Miami-dwelling uh, family. And the, there's a crime that happens in the beginning. It carries through it this feeling of kind of like the heartbrokenness that comes with being unmoored. And trying to feel at home, even though you're you've been uprooted from your home, and it's just such a beautiful book. And the way that she writes is so moving, and it it's meant so much to me as a writer. And I even when I was you know trying to finish this book, I just remember reading uh, Vita, her story collection, and just being in awe, you know, here's, here was another, uh, Colombian American writer and she, it could be done, you know? So I remember keeping that book by my bedside and just, uh, thinking to myself like that it could be done and that hoping that it would be even like a little bit close to how beautiful this, this book was. And then recently I've, I've read a lot of, uh, books by women that have come out this year. I read Aroquan. Uh, she wrote The Incendiaries. Mm-hmm. And Crystal Hannah Kim, uh, If You Leave Me. And yes. Vanessa Hua. Lydia Kiesling, she just wrote The Golden State. And I am really excited to read Nicole Chang's book. It's a memoir about adoption. Yeah, it's been like an amazing year of for women first, you know, debut women novelists. Yeah, it, it really has been amazing. And and when you were talking about The Fruit of the Drunken Tree, I remember I was thinking of Crystal Hannah Kim's cover of her book, uh, because all the flowers mean different things. She was talking to us about that on the podcast earlier, and I was like, oh, that's so beautiful, like floral symbolism, you know, on both of these debut books. And I just, that's just the coolest thing. I, we, we really love covers and like the stories behind them, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so wonderful. You know, actually, Crystal and I, we're, we're in a residency together. Oh, cool. Uh, and we were both working on these books when we were in residency together. So I really love that we, our books came out in the same year. It's just, it's been so great and so wonderful. That's amazing. It's like the the books are friends. Exactly. You know? Yeah, they they were. It's like we were pregnant and our babies, <laughs> and then now they're having playdates and bookstores all over the tree. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, that has been fun to watch. You know, similar people show up on book tour together because all these debut, these beautiful debut books came out at the same time, and the ones that you're mentioning, and yeah, that is been pretty cool 
before we started recording, you were telling us a little bit about what you were doing now, um, but is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners about what you're working on now, now the book is out? I am, so I'm working on an essay, and I am, I'm about to start working on my second book, uh, which is a, it's a memoir that is, uh, it's about my grandfather who was a curandero or a faith healer in Colombia. And people said that he had the power to move clouds. It's also about my mother and she was a fortune teller, uh, in when I was growing up in Bogota and people said that she had the power to appear in two places at once. It's a story about, you know, storytelling and what gets passed down a family line and also, you know, maybe like magical realism, but it's real magical realism. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Well, we'll definitely be looking for that and good luck as you write it for sure. Thank you. It's really fun to write so far. <laughs> That's always great. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Ingrid, for coming on to the podcast. We really enjoyed The Fruit of the Drunken Tree, and we enjoyed talking to you about it as well. Thank you. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. So that was our conversation with Ingrid Rojas-Contreras, and we love talking with her about her book, and I just really love learning about the cover of her book again. We just really are into covers, apparently. <laughs> yes, and I love that all these covers this year seem to have such meaning to them. They're beautiful, but they also kind of nod to what's going on in the story, which is really fantastic. I also really love learning about her relationship with being a bilingual person and how that worked with her book and writing and translations. And it was just a word nerd fast the whole way through. And I loved it. For sure. And, you know, we recommend a lot of translated literature on the podcast. And so it was really interesting to hear her talk about the, pro the process from her perspective, which we don't often get to hear. Yeah. And I loved how it was in her mind, originally written in Spanish, and then when she wrote it in English, and then it's translated back to Spanish. And I love that idea of, like we said, like telephone, but you also think of like Junpa Lakiri writing in Italian, and then someone else translated it back to English. And uh, just, it's really cool to see that process behind the curtains, so to speak, on translation. So fun things all around, Autumn. Absolutely. And if you haven't read Patricia Ingle or The Veins of the Ocean, we review it on a past episode of the podcast somewhere. Yes, it's one of our discussion books. Yes, that's right. So be sure to check that out and pick up a copy of that. It's a beautiful story as well. And so thank you again to Ingrid for coming on to the podcast, for talking to us about Fruit of the Drunken Tree. It is out now from Doubleday. Highly recommend picking up a copy of this book. You can find out more about her and her projects on her website, IngridRojasContreras.com, and on Instagram. And it has a couple underscores in it, so we will just link it in our show notes so you can make sure you find her there. And as for us, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. You can also find us at readingwomenpodcast.com for back episodes, author Q&As, and more. So thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.